welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. This is Anne, Chelsea's mom. This is Chelsea, Anne's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We wanted to thank everyone for listening. We've been seeing some exciting stats about the podcast. We actually got our first review, and it was a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So we wanted to shout out Run Mama Run on Apple Podcasts, and she said, you two rock, and she gave us five stars, and she said, thank you so much for launching this podcast. I'm a mom to a 13-year-old girl with late-onset SM, just started about six months ago, and I haven't found any specific resources for teens who have not had it all their lives. The topics you plan to cover are excellent, and I know will be a huge help and loving support to us all. Keep going. I am staying tuned. So thank you so much. Um, we definitely want to talk about teens in a separate episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just nice to have feedback. Yeah, it was like our first it. one. We were so excited to get it. We're like, yay, right. <laughs> somebody's listening. Someone likes what we're doing. So if you enjoy the podcast and you want us to keep doing it, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and give us some stars. We'd also love it if you would um, suggest some topics you're interested in. I know, like, I know what I want to talk about, but it might not be what you want to hear, so give us some ideas if you have any. If you're new to the podcast and you, like, don't really know what selective mutism is or you have questions, you should check out our introduction, um, like, our first episode where we talk about um, the criteria and everything like that. And uh, we just thought, you know, SM is typically diagnosed uh, before the age of five. Um, when a child enters either daycare, preschool. So it's a good, you know, a good topic of conversation. Yeah, based on Facebook and Instagram, it looks like a lot of people have kids who are, like, just getting a diagnosis or starting preschool, so we thought it would be an important topic. I also wanted to give another shout-out to someone on Instagram who tagged us in their preschool picture. The account name is diagnosis313.23sm, which is the diagnosis number for selective mutism and it's a really cool account you should definitely check it out um there's all different photos from this person's childhood where the captions are excerpts from her psychological evaluations as a child but it's just interesting to see what professionals had to say at that time and she has really cool pictures so go check her out follow her on instagram and thank you for tagging us so let's talk about preschool selective mutism is usually diagnosed before the age of five um and it's usually when the kids start when a kid starts school people are making fun of me for saying kid but i'm gonna keep saying it so kids with sm usually get diagnosed when they start school I I guess usually with preschool, and Mm -hmm. then that's when the first signs emerge because you're entering a setting where you're expected to talk. Right, so around the ages ages of three, four, or five years old, um, when kids start either preschool or daycare or sometimes even kindergarten, you know, it can be the first time that these kids are put in a social situation away from the parents where they're expected to speak. We're going to cover, like, a, a few of the bigger topics of problems that come up in preschool, So we're going to talk about, like, separation anxiety, show-and-tell, eating in front of other other kids, and and toileting is a big topic. 
And then we're just going to talk about the social aspects of like recess and making friends. So I think one of the hardest parts of preschool is dropping off your kid and a lot of the times you see separation anxiety where the child starts crying because they don't want their parent to leave. It's basically leaving them in like a new environment where they're afraid to talk and be around other people. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of like meltdowns at drop-off time. I do remember taking you to preschool. Um, one of the workers, the staff members, would always take you and hold you for a while until I had actually left the building um, because you didn't like drop-off time. Um, I don't really remember you crying when I left because that would have made it very difficult to leave and I probably would have stuck around. Um, you were just really quiet, but you know you were looking at me like, are you leaving me? Yeah. Um, so I just remember the, the staff members would always hold you. I think for me, I kind of don't remember being dropped off in preschool because I usually went with my younger brother, so it wasn't like it helped to have at least one person that I was more comfortable with. And I, I do remember I would kind of stick around for a couple of minutes, the first few minutes, just to kind of walk you into the classroom and kind of get you distracted or get you involved in playing with the, an activity or something before I would leave. Mm-hmm. I think a big part of that is having like a teacher you like or at least one per one other kid in the class that you're comfortable talking to or not even talking to just like playing with so you did have one of our neighbors um was at the same preschool and she had actually she lived on our street and you would uh, whisper to her but you knew her in our from our neighborhood before you went to school with her right so i think having that having a relationship with someone else helps with the transition mm-hmm. it helps lower the anxiety I guess the the goal is really to lower the anxiety or increase the comfort level of the child mm-hmm. and I think this is something I wanted to talk about with I guess more like teenagers but maybe just for parents to know this is something that like kind of blew my mind but it's not that it's not even that interesting but I learned that <laughs> as like a psychology student that anxiety goes up and up and up and it peaks. It always peaks and it always comes down, which when you're experiencing it, it feels like it's never going to end. But anxiety has to end at some point, like it builds up and then you have a decrease. So I think like riding it out is important and understanding that it's going to come down is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that... Uh preschooler could grasp that no but but i think for a parent to know like oh my kid's freaking out now but if we can get through this like anxiety attack basically it will settle down yep that's a good point yeah yep and then they always talk about fading with school and separation anxiety so that's basically when the parent is like literally faded out of the room So they start, like, right with the child until they are more comfortable, and then they kind of take a few steps back, maybe, and eventually they're, like, working towards being out of the room. And I think what's important about that is engaging them in some kind of, like, almost distracting activity. Like, the goal is for the kid not even to know that their parent is being faded out, I think. Mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of, it sounds kind of like what I did with you, but I didn't know I was doing that. (laughs) Right. But I think, like, a more gradual approach is helpful than just, like, oh, here's my kid, drop him off and leave, like... Right, that sounds traumatizing. It does, and it's scary, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I think having the teacher involved, is, I mean, that has to be huge in that to help you fade out. Right. You need to have a plan with a teacher. Right. So having a discussion beforehand, having a plan, mm-hmm. um, updating the plan, changing the plan right. to keep it current so that the child can be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think it for little kids, it's hard to know like what's happened. It feels like a, the whole universe is just like controlling your life and you have no control over anything and things are just happening to you. So I think it's important. Like I always wanted to know what was coming next and I wanted to schedule, know what I can expect for the day. So I think even like a visual schedule or like reviewing verbally, like what's coming next, what we're doing now, like when mom's coming back would be super helpful and like reduce anxiety yeah and I think I mean I do remember every night uh, your best time for talking or sharing your feelings was at bed at night when I was tucking you in so each night when I tucked you in you would always ask me about the following day and we'd always kind of talk about how the next day was going to go what was going to happen you know what your plans were um, and you just always wanted to know so you could settle down and go to sleep instead of laying in bed worrying about the next day so that always did help you Um, and I think too I mean anxiety is really just don't you think it's the feeling of loss of control yeah and it's like the unknown and when you don't know what's coming your brain just like fills in all the possibilities of what could happen so it's good to know like what is actually coming Mm -hmm. and I remember some people would criticize me for that saying I like babied you too much or I doted on you too much but I would say well she asked me you know she asked me Mm -hmm. I mean I think we don't give kids enough credit for you know knowing what's going on or like you were very aware of your surroundings and you always wanted to know the plan for the family right and I think there's nothing wrong with that it gave me anxiety not to know what's happening right knowing helps reduce it even if it's something you don't want to do at least knowing that it's coming helps yeah, so I think for family members, that, I don't know, that can be a tough one because it's not kind of the norm. It's almost like I know, I think some people feel like you're getting your toddler's approval for the plans where you're but just But you're not, you're just them. telling them about right, you're what sharing. is coming. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's none of their business anyway. <laughs> <laughs> people get too involved in other people's parenting. Yep. And then we just thought we could throw in some coping me- mechanisms. I know it's... It's harder to teach kids who are in preschool, like, how to manage their emotions and anxiety. I don't, I had, like, no skills, I don't think. Not at that point. We didn't really. I keep seeing, like, yoga classes and meditation classes for preschoolers, and I think that's really cool. Like, Mm -hmm. it would be cool to start teaching that skill early on. We had an idea to bring a memento from home. Like, a lot Mm -hmm. of kids have something that, like, comforts them, like a little stuffed animal or something. Yeah, a picture, picture of mom and dad, yeah. or a picture of the child with mom and dad. Mm-hmm. There or, was, um, I don't, this is a really cute idea. I'm not, like, advertising it or anything. But um, <laughs> I saw on Instagram there was this girl who had selective mutism, and her mom bought her. It's It kind of looked like a friendship bracelet, but it was, like, the mom had one bracelet, and the daughter had another, and there was a cute little, like, poem or something and it said like I'll keep my bracelet with me and you keep yours with you and they like connect us throughout the day so even when you're apart you still feel connected um yeah that's a great idea that's really comforting I would have liked that I think Mm -hmm. I thought it was a cute idea we used to do I mean it wasn't like a formal thing but 
just stick a little um you had like a lot of little mini dolls like one time we did that worry stone mm-hmm. um, i had a little like polished gem that i kept in my pocket and i think it was placebo but they would tell you like this gem reduces anxiety and if you rub it your worries go away yeah so i would actually keep it in my pocket and like kind of it was more like a fidget i feel like because yeah. i would play with it in my pocket but just something for it you to you have from home yeah. in your pocket, something little, mm-hmm. um, familiar, something that brought you comfort. Mm-hmm. It's just good to have a plan. Like when I start feeling anxious, I'll take deep breaths or something. Yep. So deep breaths. Um, you can even, I mean, you can do the yoga at home. Mm-hmm. There's so many apps out there now and programs on YouTube. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things for relaxation for toddlers. Uh, taking a stuffed animal to preschool. I don't know if this is like appropriate for preschool kids, but there's like grounding techniques that they teach kids that are like, oh, when you feel anxious, like notice something that you feel, notice something you see. Like, I don't know, it's just like noticing your environment rather than being inside your head and worrying about everything. But I think it's important for like caregivers and um, like teachers to not overreact when a kid is having anxiety like you need to like remain calm and have like a calm voice to keep the kid calm right I think it's important I guess the discussion between the parent and the teachers so the teachers can recognize that it's not acting up or being fussy or throwing a tantrum but that it's anxiety Mm -hmm. and that the child needs um, to feel safe I think there's a lot of disruptive behaviors that stem from not being able to communicate obviously and they get viewed as like bad behavior which then kids get punished for mm-hmm. and it's just not helpful it's yeah. good to have a plan with teachers on what how to react to certain behaviors and we yeah. call that a behavior plan and i think a lot of times at that age it's um, regarded as the child's stubborn right because they won't speak to you they're mm-hmm. standoffish they won't participate and it's so, important not to be punishing behaviors like that you need to be supportive and have a supportive environment so communicate 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 with the teacher Mm -hmm. talked about separation anxiety should we move on to show and tell it's kind of random but show and tell is like a big cause of anxiety in preschool because it's the first time that you're expected to get up in front of other kids and talk yeah i know for you you always were excited about show and tell you always you know i love the idea of show and tell yeah yeah (laughs) but i was too afraid. I don't remember actually doing it. You were always excited. You'd be up in your room trying to find just the right thing to take mm-hmm. for show and tell. Yeah. Um, but then I don't actually know if you ever participated I know. or not. I don't know if I ever did because I don't remember it. Um, but we just had some ideas for show and tell that would help reduce anxiety. Maybe, obviously, communicating with the teacher. So you could do like a video. I know a lot of kids are more comfortable with like recording themselves at home talking and then showing the class or showing the teacher. Mm-hmm. I think if you presented maybe just to the teacher or just to kids you're comfortable with. Another tactic would be for the teacher, instead of calling on a child individually to do show and tell, to have it be a volunteer activity. So you have the opportunity to do it if you do feel confident enough to step up and do show and tell. Uh, another idea would be just to have the kids pair off into pairs and then you just tell your buddy about your item that you brought that day for show and tell. Mm-hmm. I think 
all of those are ways to increase the possibility and make kids more comfortable. So we also wanted to talk about eating and it seems like, not for me, but other kids with SM have issues eating in front of others or eating at school. I don't have a lot of personal experience with this, but I'm wondering if it's just due to like heightened anxiety and you don't feel safe eating or comfortable eating or you don't even have an appetite because your anxiety's so high. It could also just be that thing where you don't want to do things in front of people, which I experienced a lot and I can relate to that, like not wanting to do anything to draw attention to yourself. Um, I also thought this is probably unlikely, but this is something I think of as like a behavior therapist that if like a snack is hard to open, like they're probably not going to ask for help and then that would result in them not eating. I think it's important to address those things maybe by having like smaller groups or I don't know. It's kind of a hard. I think sometimes too, I know some preschools um, have you package your own lunch and then other preschools uh, provide the food and all the kids are eating the same food. Right. So I kind of wonder if it's less of an issue when they're all eating the same food versus you're packing your own lunch. Mm-hmm. Anyway, again, I think communication with the teacher, right. um, you know, helping you open the packages, maybe setting the child up to eat um, so the child just has to basically, you know, Right, because eating is important. It's just like going to the bathroom. It's like a necessary thing that has to happen during the day. It's just all about communication and making the child feel less anxious, less uh, fearful, more comfortable, more at ease. And talking to your child, the child, you know, these right. kids can really tell you. I mean, they usually, I think you used to make excuses and say, well, I wasn't hungry or, yeah. you know, I just didn't want to or I didn't like it. Yeah. You know, you'd always have a reason for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe helping having you help pack the lunch. Yeah, and then you get some buy-in where kids are show, like picking what they're interested in and what mm-hmm. they like. They're more likely to eat what they pick. Mm-hmm. And I think too, just talking with the teacher and asking what goes on at lunchtime mm-hmm. at mealtime, like could you please keep an eye on my child and you know see that they have something to eat mm-hmm. during the day. Even like when everyone's done eating, if you give them the option, they might be more likely to eat when no one's watching. Mm -hmm. It all depends on why they're not eating, which it's probably individual for each kid. Right. We're going to talk about toileting. It's a big topic in preschool. It's big in elementary school too, but we saved it for preschool. I know we talked about it a little bit in the last episode. Mm -hmm. So at least here in the U.S., I know a lot of preschool Uh, preschool age or kindergarten age actually by kindergarten you already are toileting yourself but a lot of the preschools here require you to be toilet trained before you can actually enroll in preschool and we talked about this when we were like making notes for the podcast and we were talking about how a lot of kids are toilet trained at home and then if they have selective mutism and they're put in this new environment and they're starting preschool all of a sudden they're regressing because they're not comfortable using the toilet or at school or they're not comfortable asking or they just don't want they have anxiety and they they just hold it instead of drawing attention to themselves right I think holding urine or holding holding it is a huge um, issue for selective mutism children yeah it seems to be a common topic that we see on Facebook Mm -hmm. 
I think a big part of it, at least for you, was the electronic or the automatic flushing toilets. Yes, I was terrified of them. Um, it was scary, the sound. It was, you know, yeah. all of a sudden you couldn't predict when it was right. going to flush. Because when you're small, the sensor it doesn't see you because you have a small body. Yep. So and we it will just to... go off while you're sitting on it, and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. I used to actually cover it with my hand, mm-hmm. but the odd time it didn't work. And yeah. it... <laughs> so... I know. I've heard of covering it with a sticky note so that it doesn't go off while you're sitting there. I think, you know, toileting has so many. First of all, there's getting to the toilet, either asking to use the toilet, or even if you don't have to ask, um, actually standing up in front of other people and walking towards the bathroom because Mm -hmm. you don't want anyone to ask you, where are you going? Yeah. Um, That can even be fearful. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know kids, a lot of kids with SM have sensory issues. Yeah. And wiping yourself. Uh, can be an issue for those mm-hmm. children. There's so many issues. We we talked about this in the other episode, but I think having like some kind of nonverbal communication or like augmentative communication, so like having a card you exchange or um, like having a bathroom pass that you just always have access to so you can go whenever you want and you don't have to spe- like verbally ask a teacher might help. And then also having like an open door to the bathroom policy where you're just allowed to use it whenever you need it. I think too it also depends sometimes. I think you did better. You went to one place where they had the the bathroom was actually in the back of the classroom. Yeah. And it was a single individual bathroom. A lot of preschools have that. Yeah the bigger schools one have of... the row of stalls but um, I think that's harder actually than going into an individual bathroom yourself. Yeah because you feel like you're not alone in the stalls. Because mm. <laughs> there's people next to you. I think scheduling bathroom visits is important. I, I'm pretty sure a lot of preschools do that, where they just want everyone to use the bathroom at a certain time. So then you're being prompted to, and there's no, like, uh, attention on you specifically because the whole class is doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. It really depends on each kid and why they're not using the bathroom at yeah. school. And I think preschool's different than kindergarten. Right. Because... Uh... Yeah, preschool, you're still all lining up, you're going to the washroom, (laughs) um, all at the same time kind of thing, like, you know, one at a time, but you're part of a group, like you just said. But then I think kindergarten, there's a lot more, I don't know, interaction, kids are more verbal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a lot tougher in kindergarten. I think, um, I know for Chelsea, I don't know if you want me to share this, but one time there was an issue in kindergarten where she'd gone into the stall and then somebody peeked underneath the stall (laughs) and so that ruined that then she was terrified to go there you know there were several issues somebody was going to peek underneath the stall um, flushing of the toilets you know peeing at the same time as everybody else and then one day one of the girls held the door when you were trying to get out of the stall and so to escape you had to climb underneath the stall Um, which was quite traumatizing Mm -hmm. Um, again communication 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 with the teacher is just so huge and the kid if they can talk about why Mm -hmm. they're feeling anxious you can learn a lot from that and you can change the environment to support them (laughs) yeah and I remember when you were in um, counseling this wasn't preschool I don't think this I think this was actually kindergarten Mm -hmm. but one of the goals was for us to go to a public washroom and we were supposed to go into every stall and flush the toilet one after another down the row yeah that's actually called flooding when you Mm. like 
put yourself in like you face your fear and you Mm -hmm. do it to the extreme so flushing every single toilet was Mm -hmm. an extreme measure we did not accomplish that (laughs) i think a more (laughs) gradual approach would be better like oh you withstand the sound of it Mm -hmm. i don't know with like desensitization you you might start with just like listening to a recording of a toilet flushing like that and then you kind of work up to like standing outside the bathroom with it flushing and then standing inside the bathroom then standing right in the stall with it flushing and you're obviously reinforcing like success with that and And nothing bad's gonna happen when we flush. Right it's just getting over the fear and I don't think I had a reason to be afraid like I didn't think I was gonna get like sucked into the toilet or anything I just thought the sound was like scary. Mostly the sound Mm because it was so loud and all of a sudden yeah and I remember I did try negotiating with you that I would be the person to flush the toilets, but no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't uh, go for that. What is that? Like mean? instead of you going in each stall and flushing, that was too fearful oh, for you. So I yeah. remember trying to negotiate with you, saying I would go in and flush them. Mm. But um, anyway, we didn't do that. But that is an idea for maybe yeah. other people <laughs> to try. And also sticker charts again. Right. We did do sticker charts for um, using the bathroom mm-hmm. successfully, independently. And I remember, like I'd always tell when you hadn't gone, because the minute you got home from school, you literally would run to the bathroom and pee. Yeah. (laughs) But I could tell you had held it all day. Yeah, I did. And I think sometimes I didn't even know that I needed to go to the bathroom because I was so worried about everything else going on that my brain wasn't like, oh, you should probably pee. Yeah, it was just like, I'm nervous about the kids and what what is happening to me and what we're doing, what I'm going to have to do, and your brain just doesn't even realize you have to pee. So we're going to talk about the social aspects of preschool, and I wanted to talk about how um, with selective mutism, there's a cycle where it makes it harder and harder to talk because you get stuck in this pattern of behavior. So it starts with a child being prompted to talk or being expected to talk in a certain situation and the anxiety rushes in you get too overwhelmed with anxiety that you just can't talk so you're silent and silent and then because you're silent it's an awkward silence and the adult usually comes in and rescues you by either talking for you or just changing the subject and then as a result both of both the child and the adult involved, their anxiety's lowered, so they're escaping the situation. So that's almost like a reward. Right, right? so you're rewarded for that behavior, basically, and you're more likely to do it in the future, which is called negative reinforcement. So this cycle just keeps happening and happening. So as this goes on, it gets harder and harder to break that cycle, and what I think what also plays into that is the expectation of all the other kids they start to realize like you just don't talk so then when you do it's like a humongous deal Mm -hmm. and you get even more attention drawn on you which is even worse so you Mm -hmm. never break the cycle so how do how do you break the cycle i mean what what point in that cycle so should it change when you are expected to talk or someone asks you a question the adult should pause and give you a chance to answer And it might seem really awkward at first because it's going to take a long time to get any kind of response. But I think even like a nod or a gesture is worth celebrating Mm -hmm. and you're going to gradually move up from that. I think progress is 
it's not going to be like automatic and it's going to take a lot of time, but you shouldn't give up just because it takes a long time. And that's so hard as a parent though, because you feel so badly for the child, like right. that awkward silence. Like I know you can, it's easy to wait a few mm-hmm. seconds, but as that pause goes on, it's so hard not to jump mm-hmm. in and just help your right. child. It feels like you're helping them, but you're just like continuing the cycle. That's true. Right. That's hard. Right. Yeah. And the the earlier this happens in a child's life, I think the better. Like, and you're probably not even going to remember preschool. I guess I remember preschool. But, but because it was traumatic. <laughs> yeah. So early intervention is key. Right. Because the more ingrained these behaviors come, mm-hmm. um, the harder it is to change them or correct and them. I, you don't outgrow selective mutism. It no. changes because you're changing your behavior. And that only, it's not easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's so difficult with teenagers, I think, by the time the behaviors are so ingrained that mm-hmm. it's really... It makes it harder and harder to break because you have years and years of that pattern mm-hmm. to break. So that has to do a lot with social um, situations in preschool, such as making friends and the other kids expecting you not to talk because you you have a history of not talking. Mm-hmm. So I just have this story where I had one friend in preschool, the one that I knew before I started preschool, and I would whisper to her. She was the only person I would kind of talk to, but I would never talk to her if other kids were around. So I just remember one time at recess, she started playing with other kids more, and she wanted me to play with them too, but I couldn't. Like, I just wouldn't do it. And... I just remember I was fed up and I was like, I'm going to get her back. Like, I'm going to get her to play with me again. And I remember going into, you know, those like plastic houses they had. And I went in there and all the kids were like playing with the daddy long legs. And I just wanted to get her to come play with me. So that was the first time I spoke, I think, in front of other people at preschool. And I think I just said like, like, can you come play with... It was a very short sentence, but I said, like, come with me or something. And everyone was losing their mind. Like, kids were running around mm-hmm. screaming, like, telling everyone, Chelsea just talked, she just talked. Like, and, like, I don't think I ever talked again at preschool oh, no. because that was a very negative experience for me. Oh. And I could just feel, like, the blood, like, rushing into my face and, like, oh. you get, like, dizzy and, yeah. Um, All the attention. It's very aversive. When you were at that preschool, we did have an evaluation done, and it was actually um, the town we live in. They sent a group from the school system to watch you and observe you on the playground, and um, it was for placement for kindergarten. So they did have a special kindergarten for sort of a special ed class, and they were evaluating to see if you were appropriate for that class. So they came to watch you on the playground, and I didn't really realize or know this was going on that you were only speaking to this one friend and they put in the assessment that if other children came near then you would stop or you would move away you'd actually get up and move away Um, and they said that when you were very aware of them being there and that uh, you would not speak or if you were whispering to your friend that you would clam up and stop because you saw them approaching yeah I was always very aware. And you would speak to other kids through this one friend. You would whisper to her to tell them what you wanted to say. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of scary looking back because I think I, like, having injured, like, getting hurt or something, I would not tell someone. I remember having 
an accident at preschool and I just like was too embarrassed to tell anyone so I just was like mm-hmm. walking around with pee pants in the playground by myself because I didn't want anyone to see it and like get attention drawn to me and that's really sad <laughs> like I yeah and the, I just think of like kids getting hurt and not being able to tell anyone or you I wouldn't even cry like most kids would cry if they got hurt I remember one time, I think you were just three, and you were actually, we had a swing set in the backyard, and I remember you jumping off the swing. You, like, jumped off the swing, and then that was it for playing on the swing set. But then when I brought you in the house, I don't know how I discovered it, but you had actually gotten stung by a bee on your back, but you hadn't cried, you didn't flinch, like, you didn't want me to find out about it. Yeah, it was worse for people to be, like, fussing over it. I know that's heartbreaking. I know. I know. Poor kids. There must be like a way. I don't know. Yeah. But you don't even want attention for it. Do you want to talk about the chipmunk story at preschool? The chipmunk story. This is just a silly story, but I remember it very clearly. And I think it was like a really hot day and we were filling Mm -hmm. up the, um, like a kiddie pool. And I was like, I don't know, we were supposed to go get our bathing suits on soon, but I wasn't in my bathing suit yet. And I was wearing like shorts and a t-shirt. And I just saw these, like, two chipmunks chasing each other. And they were, like, running all over the place, just chasing each other. And all of a sudden, they just ran up my leg and went through my shorts and up my shirt and came out my sleeve. And I just, like, froze. And I was just hoping nobody saw it. And I never said anything about it, I don't think. Well, when I showed up to pick you up that day, the teachers couldn't wait to tell me what had happened. (laughs) They probably thought I was, like, a tree because I wasn't doing anything and it was so quiet they were so excited they couldn't believe that these chipmunks had you know run up your shirt and up your pants and you I just remember you were like sitting there like blank faced like you did not want us talking about it you just wanted to pretend the whole thing hadn't happened because those chipmunks drew a lot of attention to me that I didn't (laughs) want (laughs) hopefully you found something useful out of what we have to say about preschool I know a lot has changed since when I was in preschool. Like, communication's obviously key. We've said that a million times. Talking to the teacher, talking to your kid, uh, dealing with anxiety as it relates to your child. It's I see a lot of people asking for advice from other people. And um, just because other kids with selective mutism um, are having similar issues doesn't mean it's going to be solved in the same way. So I think trying different things is super important and you, not just going off of what other people say because it might not work for you. And I, I know that we talked about um, in the kindergarten episode or in the school episode, we mm-hmm. talked about um, preparing before you even start school. And I think the same thing's true for uh, preschool is to actually, before the first day of preschool, maybe go to the preschool, mm-hmm. walk around the playground, maybe go in the classroom, meet the teacher, um, just to prepare a little bit and to take away some of that anxiety of the first day. Right, preschool's tough because that's when, I mean, a lot of kids, when they go into preschool, the parents don't yet have a diagnosis. They don't even right. know anything's wrong. Yeah, and then it's you start usually seeing problems. in preschool when issues are identified. Mm-hmm. True. So I think getting right on top of it is super important. Don't wait for things to change magically. You're going to have to put some effort in. I think in preschool, kids are more accepting, and it's easier to start having friendships. And kids who don't like don't have selective mutism are going to be the most this is the time they're going to be the most accepting and I think it's great to have like play dates and they're Mm -hmm. not even gonna be that upset that (laughs) 
they're not talking because they're like, oh, we still play together. And I think that's super important to have someone, at least someone that you're comfortable with at preschool. Right. I mean, it's true because typically you'll do parallel play first Mm -hmm. and then progress to playing with a child. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So maybe if you can find that one child that is maybe more like your child that you think they're going to interact with, have them paired up, Mm -hmm. have some play dates ahead of time before the school year or preschool Mm -hmm. starts um, just to build that relationship or just trust. This will be coming out in October. I guess we're recording it right now and it's the end of September. But October is Selective Mutism Awareness Month. So we want to encourage you to share this podcast to spread awareness with anyone you know who might be interested. You might want to share it with family. I think it's hard to explain to family and it would be good to have some more understanding. I think if they know that it is a real thing and there are... There's a podcast about it. There's thousands of kids out there (laughs) suffering with this. It's not just my child and I'm not being an overbearing parent. They're not. keep seeing that in comments. Yeah, like, oh, they'll grow out of it. They're just shy. Yeah, and I experienced that myself with you. You know, people didn't want to believe it was actually a diagnosis. Yeah. It was just, um, oh, she's shy. Like, get over Mm -hmm. it. Yep. Um, There's that whole mentality of, like, they just need to toughen up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but true. that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, share it. Um, help educate. Educate mm-hmm. about SM. Um, and I just want to mention that um, Child Mind Institute in New York City is having a workshop. I believe it starts October 16th. And it's, um, I think it's titled Selective Mutism 101. And it's completely free. I saw this on their website. Stephen Kurtz also has a free e-course on selective mutism it's kind of the same idea it's all about the um, basics of selective mutism it's on his website at kurtzpsychology.com you should definitely check it out if you haven't already and kurtz is k-u-r-t-z or k-u-r-t-z for people in canada and the uk right Mm -hmm, i think so yeah we have listeners from all over the place we did a little poll and asked where people are from it was really cool yeah, all over worldwide. <laughs> so it's, it's been a lot of fun. It has been fun. Well, thank you so much for listening again. And go rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. Yeah. That would be super awesome. Thank you for listening to it out loud. We'll see you next time. <laughs>